Hi everyone, welcome to the Quantum Heart Cafe. Um, I'm your host and this is a podcast where I read books and I share my um, thoughts and opinions about what I'm reading and relate them to important current events that aren't really being talked about in the mainstream media, like the, you know, like the rollout of Web3 technologies, but then also I like to talk about um, psychology and spirituality and just sort of intermix all of them, and I do it through reading <laughs> books, and I know it's been a, a while since I've posted the next part in the series Emergence. I just, I just felt like I just kind of need a little bit of a break from the podcast, like the summer has been pretty busy and uh and it's also been really hot like it's quite warm because i usually record at home and so it's been really warm uh so trying to record a show has been pretty it, you know it's been a, a bit i just decided that i would just take my time over the summer and then as things cool off and as the winter and fall approach then i feel like i'm going to be making more uh podcasts and more episodes uh, but I just wanted to continue Emergence because I really do want to finish uh, the series. I want to continue with the series because it's important. And then um, <clears throat> I'm going to focus more so on like the behavior and the token economics and so on that is in involved with technology. And if you don't understand what that means, it's okay. I'm going to, this is what this series is for, is to explore those subjects that, um, I know a handful of really dedicated, amazing researchers are uh, exploring these, and I hope that my podcast sort of adds to the voice uh, or adds to their, their work in a way, because, again, these conversations are important, and I feel like, you know, human, human beings and all beings on planet Earth, we're uh, kind of at a crossroads right now, like, do we continue down this uh, Faustian deal with technology or, you know, do we figure something else out? And I think we can figure something else out, but, um, and part of figuring that out is just an awareness of what's going on. And so that's why if you hear terms like token economics or, um, you know, Web3 or so on, I'll do my best as I'm learning, because I'm learning those things myself. Uh, through the books that I've been ordering and the books I've been um, sort of collecting because that's going to be the focus of the show, especially as the fall and winter come around. Um, so yeah, so, so just, you know, um, so, you know, sorry I haven't been around as much, but I am focused uh, and committed to finishing the book Emergence. Uh, and then I'm going to start with, um, I got a book that Alison McDowell often recommends is called Beyond the Box and it's about B.F. Skinner's work and if you aren't familiar with him he was a psychologist and he did a lot in behavior science which is and his results have been used in large part of society today and I feel like that's a good foundation for talking about or starting to talk about uh, token economics because a lot of that came out of the work in psychology um, because they use token economics with um, schizophrenic patients so that's kind of where I'm going to be heading for a little while and of course some stories I want to finish Madeline Ingalls book 
her uh, series, the Time Quartet series. There's one more book left I have to, I want to read. Um, and then there's some other books I want to explore, like really cool children's stories. Because a lot of, find there's a lot of really cool um, knowledge, like gems in children's stories, you know? So, um, so yeah. Uh, and for today's show, I'm going to be... Uh, continuing with the Emer the Emergence series, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the chapter on feedback, because artificial emergence, um, in order for a system to go from just being complex to complex and adaptive, is it needs feedback. And so this whole um, chapter is about feedback. So Stephen... Um, Johnson, who is the author of the book Emergence, he talks. He begins the chapter by be by talking about um, TV and mass media, and how it's become an example of bottom up uh, emergence or artificial emergence. So, but I kind of find it hard to believe that's bottom up because, um, you know, a lot of people are. Or a lot of channels now, or much of the mass media is controlled and owned by a few corporations. And even YouTube, like, I mean, I remember when YouTube first started, and you can post a lot of video, like, you can post a ton of content on there, and you still can. Um, but back in the day, it was easy for, you know, if people found a channel that they liked, it was easy for that channel to build an audience and, you know, to, I guess, Get content that way. Um, now that content is much more curated, and there's a lot more restrictions around what type of content can be posted there. And some of them are good, you know, like age restrictions and and that kind of thing. But there's a lot of that that really hampers the diversity of the content being offered on YouTube. And and I say you there are, I know that there are other video sharing platforms out there, but YouTube's still one of the biggest ones. So that's why I'm I'm talking about that. But I, I do know that there's other uh video channels or video sharing platforms up there available. And 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 also YouTube with the algorithm, it really curates the content that you're exposed to. So I'm sure you most people who are listening have probably experienced this where, you know, the content you see is highly, you know, the algorithm kind of picks it for you or they do recommendations and suggestions, which is, which is a form of feedback. And so it's really easy for people to kind of get, you know, sucked into an echo chamber in a way instead of being exposed to all sorts of different ideas and opinions, but they're only exposed to the stuff that the algorithm knows that they like so I don't know I still don't think that that's a really example of really organic bottom-up emergence um, because you there's still a lot of central control around what people see so it's not really an organic system I mean yes you can find alternative content creators but it's not as easy as it used to be and you kind of have to know what you're looking for. And then if YouTube doesn't like a video that a person's put up, then they can easily take it down. 
or they can block it, or they can do all sorts of things that really limit what people are exposed to. So I disagree with that point when Stephen brought that up. It's not, it, the mass media, and I would now include social media, is not an example of a bottom-up, like, natural emergence. It's an example of control, as central control, masquerading as decentralized control. Um, so I, yeah, it's not really, there's not really as much, I think when I, when a lot of these tech com or these social media platforms were first starting, then yeah, there was a ton of diversity and all sorts of things were happening, but there's a lot more control now. And I think most people can figure that out. Uh, Steven also talks about how the media frenzies can create feedback loops where more coverage creates more coverage and it just becomes hysterical and I do agree with that I think that uh, and we've kind of seen it where stories that you see on mass media they can kind of take on this like hysteric nature to them and it's not like they're anyone's taking a step back and looking calmly at the story it's like it almost turns into a wildfire and the, the hysteria just keeps building up to like a fevered pitch and and at that point, it's kind of, it can't really be controlled by the mass media. It just kind of has to peter itself out. Um, so I, I do agree that there can be feedback loops in uh, mass media coverage and story coverage. And it becomes like a positive feedback loop. And I'll get into the difference between positive and negative feedback loops Um a little later in this presentation. Uh, and then he talks about how agents come into the... Because in complex adaptive systems, and I think I may have mentioned this in previous series, but individuals aren't treated as individual people. Like they're treated as called like agents in the system. So individuality and the ability to think critically isn't really valued in artificial emergence because if people began to think about the system and think about the game and the artificial emergence, then the the game is up, right? Like it doesn't but once people figure out that they're being that they're in a simulation, then and they start kind of waking up to that, then it's it, the artificial emergence stops working. Um, so, but so what they want to try and do is, you know, kind of replace individuality with agents, where it's like you become, it's like kind of how in companies, if you have a job in a big corporation, you're just really a number. Like you're not Susan, you're not Sarah, you're not. Jim or James or whoever, like you're just a number, an employee. Like it might be different in a smaller company where you know the boss and stuff, so you're not really treated as a number. But the more like complex a system gets or the bigger a company gets, then you know, it becomes an impersonal institution and the people that are, are working there become agents and they become just numbers on a spreadsheet like they're not really they're the being and their human being is not really there anymore I mean and, and if you think about it corporations are pretty 
like if you're to think about a corporation as a like the psychological profile of a corporation it is psychopathic right um i read the book a long time ago the corporation um and i mean it's kind of older now but there's still some really good stuff in that book and it just talks about like the nature of corporations and how corporations are you know they're designed to maximize shareholder profit and even if a ceo again if a ceo acts as an individual rather than as an agent you know then that ceo could end up getting fired because they're they're kind of interfering with the company's ability to make profits for the shareholders so let's say you get a ceo and that person you know he or she are really you know conscientious and they want to uh, serve the community that they're in. They, um, you know, let's say if it's like a, a company that they find out that their product is polluting the environment and they want to put a stop to it because they think it, they know it's unethical. Well, if their measures cut into the profits of the shareholders, then the board of directors, which appoint the CEOs and the other uh, chiefs of staff, They'll get, the board of directors will just fire that CEO and hire someone else. So they're not, like, ethics isn't really, doesn't really exist in a corporation. A corporation will always do what's in the best interests of a corporation. And the people working there are simply just agents. Like, they're not really individual beings. Like, they're treated as agents and they can be um, interchanged. You know, they'll, they don't mind, like we've seen this before, we've seen it recently where the, they'll, they don't care about laying off tens of thousands of people because it's, it, it's in their best, if it's in their best interest to do so, they'll lay them off. Like, and they'll just replace them with other agents because they don't, again, they don't see the individual, they just see agents and whether or not that agent can uh, fulfill the duty of their job or make extra profit or whatever. <clears throat> and then he also talks about how agents can become influencers. And that's really important because if you think about social media, because right, like I said, er, back in the day when YouTube was just, and I'm going to just use YouTube as an example, but back in the day when YouTube was starting, you could have all sorts of different like influencers and content creators uh, and people there was a lot more diversity of opinion and you know, whether it was good or bad, like it's, that's up to the person watching the content to figure out, but there was a lot more of it. Now, most of the influencers at like the really popular channels on YouTube are there for a reason and they're there to, um, help stimulate and push people in a direction that the system wants them to go. So influencers are now more like agents in the system, um, whether they know it or not. Like some of them may be aware of that and, you know, they, you could say that they may be hired or something, um, but some of them may not be aware of it, but their content is useful for the system, so they'll become popular. Uh, it's just how it is right now. Um, but, you know, you can always find 
there's a lot of amazing, wonderful people out there. Um, they won't have like big YouTube followings or channels, but they're there. It just takes looking for them, right? Um, but yeah, just know that most of the big time influencers and people with big platforms, like if you're watching, I'm not saying don't watch them or anything, but you know, maybe pay attention what they're, they're saying and like, think about how that can, what they're saying will help or hinder this system, if that makes sense. So critical thinking is really important when it comes to evaluating an influencer and anyone who has a platform, including myself, but mine's not that big, but you know, I just encourage people to use critical thinking when they're uh, consuming content, just because so much, so much of it is heavily curated and influenced by algorithms and so on. And then um, Stephen talks about how emergent systems aren't intrinsically or artificially emergent systems aren't intrinsically good. Uh, it, it, it depends on their component parts what the goals of their, that the, like the goals that the component parts are working for or working towards and how the immersion system is built. So, so he was saying that pretty much what that says is that there's no inherent good or bad with artificial emergence. It depends on what the intentions behind it are and the different components. Um, I'd agree with that to an extent. I'd also add in that with artificial emergence, when I say artificial emergence, I mean the emergence that the system is trying to build. Like the, there's certain, like the system itself is trying to be like a godlike figure or it's trying to place itself between people and God. So, and if that sounds a little sci-fi, I, you know, I, I don't know what else to say because it's happening. And so there there are certain people in the world and certain ways of thinking and intentions that would like to try out being God and try out being the divine creator. And I don't think it's going to work, but they are going definitely going to try. And so when I say artificial emergence, that's the that's I'm talking about the system, like the predatory system trying to place itself between uh, the beings on this planet and the divine creator. Because uh, there is an actual emergence that comes from the creator. You know, if you've ever had a synchronicity or you ever had like a, you know, you have a thought and it manifests or if you ever get a, an intuitive feeling about something, and it turns out that that was correct. Like I'm talking about that. Like that. There's there is a natural emergence. Um, so I just wanted. That's why I say artificial because I want to distinguish the two of them because natural emergence isn't bad. It's part of the cosmic order or the cosmic, the whole of the cosmos. Whereas artificial emergence isn't. It's kind of like a a bastardization of it. Uh, and I know that's strong language, but it's it's true. And then Stephen goes on to talk about the feedback loops for urban cities have both uh, have 
created interesting neighborhoods and and as well as slums. So I guess he he's trying to talk, give an example of how um, artificial emergence isn't inherently good because the feedback loops in artificial emergence creates both really interesting neighborhoods as well as poor slums. Um, and he thinks that in order to correct the slums, we just need better to build a better system. Um, the reason why the slums are there, air quote, is because, you know, I've said this in a previous uh, series that um, there still is a class divide. Like the, you know, I know back in the day, they used to talk about the poor, middle class, and the rich. And that still exists. It hasn't gone away. There still is a class system. And the upper classes, you know, they're the ones that if they have the money, they'll go in and gentrify a poor neighborhood and make it really expensive. And then they, like, price out people and push them to the margins. I mean, we're seeing that happen all over the world now where rents and housing and everything's become expensive and it's not by accident it's um it's being done on purpose and i'll put a link to one of allison mcdowell's videos she talked about like housing and uh especially like workplace housing and stuff it was a really good presentation and it kind of when you watch that you kind of see how all the all this talk about the housing crisis how that's kind of playing into artificial emergence because it's all like none of these high rents and high housing prices they're not an accident there's a reason why it's happening and you know they'll give their answer for why it's happening but if you kind of read between the lines and you kind of look beyond just what they're saying on the news or what the influencers are saying or mainstream media and so on and you kind of look beyond that and you kind of take a critical look about it you'll see that there's an agenda to get people into like these tiny homes that will have network sensors so that they can gather data off of people uh so there's a reason why this is happening again i don't think it's gonna work but they're like breaking the system to offer up their solution i don't think that's gonna work uh I do think that a lot of people are going to get hurt in the meantime. So I, and that's what I hope this channel can help people navigate the labyrinth and, and navigate these weird, the weird stuff that we're all kind of going through right now. And then like uh, Steven also talks about how feedback loops, uh, make a complex system adaptive. And I kind of talked about that earlier. Uh, and then he talks about positive and negative negative feedback. So the two main types of feedback in a complex adaptive system are going to be negative and positive. Um, and so a positive feedback loop is when it kind of creates a, a runaway effect. Like it's a, a exponential, like if you think about, excuse me, exponential growth, that's an example of a positive feedback loop. So at first, you just have a, a little bit of something, and then it grows exponentially, and eventually it just gets out of control. So that could be a an example of a positive feedback loop. And then a negative feedback loop 
uh, it lends itself to more stability, and it it brings um, it keeps his system in balance, so to speak. So if something if there's an increase somewhere in the system, then there's going to be a decrease somewhere else, and so the negative feedback is used to keep keep things in check. So I think a good example is probably in your house, like with the thermostat. So if the house senses that, you know, you set the thermostat to, to maybe a few degrees above, um, or you, you set your thermostat to a temperature that you're comfortable with, like say in the winter time, well, a system will, will have, will use negative feedback to adjust the temperature. So if, if it senses that, let's say it's a bedroom that you want to keep warm, if it senses that the bedroom is starting to cool off, then it'll increase, they'll cause more heat. Like maybe if you have like a, a hot water heater or if you have like a, a boiler in your house or something, then the boiler will come on and you'll have heat coming into the room. And then once it senses that there's maybe too much heat, then it'll turn the boiler off and give a chance for the room to cool off if you're getting a little too toasty. So, so there's always like a way to uh, adjust the temperature to try and keep you warm in a room, if that makes sense. Like it's not perfect because temperature is um, it's not as immediate. You know, it takes time for a room to cool down and then it also takes a little bit of time for a room to heat up. But you kind of see how there's like that positive and negative or sorry that negative relationship where if it's too hot the boiler will turn off if it's too cold the boiler turns on and you get more heat in the room so uh, and then negative feedback uh, like I said it keeps the system in check um, and then the positive and positive feedback promotes growth in the system but it has to be careful because it could go out of control easily. And then negative feedback allows the system to uh, remain constant even when the environment changes. Uh, and then negative feedback is a way of indirectly pushing a fluid and changeable system towards a goal. Uh, negative feedback is the difference between a complex adaptive system and a complex system. Uh, and then negative feedback can be used in, uh, you know, an example of the application. I already talked about like temperature control, but negative feedback is often used in circuits. It's used, our neur neurons in our body and our brain use negative feedback. Um, and then Stephen talks about missiles using negative feedback. <laughs> All right. Well, there's the military application right there. Um, and then with negative feedback, uh, the system looks at the current state and the desired state and finds ways to push the system towards the desired state, which is probably one of the reasons why uh, complex adaptive systems use the negative feedback because I know they want to push us all towards this global superorganism like a global brain or, um, yeah, a global super organism. And they're working on pushing everyone towards that direction. And again, if this sounds sci-fi, 
I encourage you to check out the work of Oliver L. Reiser. He wrote the book World Sensorium. Uh, and then there's another book Dallas and kind of um, Alison McDowell brought up, which is The Global Brain. Um, and that's by a different author. Let me see if I can just look him up quick, uh, quickly because it's a... Just trying to get it. Um, Howard Bloom. There we go. Howard Bloom. So I, I was looking up Howard Bloom because he wrote the book Global Brain, The Evolution of Mass Mind from the Big Bang to the 21st Century. So I know it sounds sci-fi to talk about some world superorganism, but there are people that are work like working on this, and unfortunately, they're in positions of influence and power in this system. So it's it's kind of important to keep that in the back of your mind, like just that there is kind of like that push towards like an interconnected uh, synthetic life where. All beings on planet Earth, um, like the the vision is to uh, enter or intertwine beings on Earth, because not just humans, like it's trees, plants, uh, you know those poor slime molds and ants, and other beings that they want to, um, like they want to integrate them with synthetic technology, like nano machines and and so on. So there is that push. I guess I know it sounds really weird and sci-fi, but it's there and you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look up uh MIT, their research into it, the Santa Fe Institute, the Aspen Institute. Like there's so many organizations that are involved in this project. Um that's not really I know it sounds like it's a conspiracy or it sounds crazy, but once you start looking into this stuff, you realize that, oh man, this is real. And it is. So, um, and then just to continue on with a few more slides uh, from the, the chapter, because it wasn't a very big chapter, it was a smaller, it was a smaller one. So it shouldn't be, uh, today's presentation isn't going to be a huge, a very long one. Um, and then the Negative feedback also allows um, another really important characteristic of negative feedback in a complex adaptive system is that it uh, creates the ability for self-regulation and homeostasis. And that's what they really want is they want this homeostasis, this perfect balance, this perfect order. And it, that's not going to happen because that's not really how nature works. But again, they're going to try this um, with their synthetic biology and stuff like that. <coughs> and then he does, uh, Stephen Johnson does uh, speak a little bit about biofeedback. So scientists have used biofeedback machines to report things like changes in adrenaline. Um, and if you think about like the internet of things and internet of bodies devices, like the Fitbit, I would argue is an internet of, 
it's either an internet of things or internet of bodies device because people wear the Fitbits, but the Fitbits are constantly measuring your steps. They're constantly measuring heartbeat. Um, I think they can measure brain waves now. Like I've seen this really creepy uh, commercial on YouTube whenever I'm watching videos about Fitbit, and I wouldn't be surprised if I get an ad for Fitbit after watching this, but it's where uh, a woman and a black woman, and that's actually really important because they really want the melatonin. Um, and I'll go into that a bit de in a bit more in another episode, but the, the woman is wearing a Fitbit around her wrist and then she's sleeping at night. But then this really creepy cartoon comes on where her brain is like having a conversation with the other organs in her body and saying that oh yeah we're being monitored and blah 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 through this device um so it is happening like there are sensors in fitbits and all these other wearable technologies that are designed to gather data about our internal state and it's not for our own benefit like they could care less about our health it's about understanding what makes us tick as individuals and as groups because if everyone's wearing these devices, like if you get a group of people and they're wearing these devices, then you can study them as a group. Because in previous, uh, in the previous series I did on this book, I talked about clusters and how for um, another really important characteristic of artificial emergence is that they're also not interested in the individual on their own in terms of gathering data, like they are, but they're, they're more interested in gathering data in relation to a big group of people, like a cluster, because then that data provides patterns. It provides information that they can start to see a pattern or they can start to see how people may respond to something, and that's what they want. And so if everyone's wearing a Fitbit and they could see how a cluster or a group of people is responding to, to to some external event, whether it's simu whether they've simulated or simulated it or not. Um, so if you, I don't know, I would encourage you to be you know, maybe just to really think hard about buying these types of devices because there is um, a dual use to them, and maybe there's an maybe there's something else that could help you with monitoring your your sleep and stuff and not necessarily with technology and actually technology gets in the way of our ability to to sleep properly and stuff so maybe you know if you're having a hard time sleeping at night put your phone and your fit take the fitbit off and take your smartphone and put them on the other side of your house and just focus on getting a good night's sleep at least that's my two cents anyway um and then he go in the part about biofeedback, Stephen then continues to talk about how uh, patients are allowed to monitor their anxiety and other states by letting um, doctors explore different, different mental states and gather data, or researchers explore different mental states and gather data. Uh, patients learn how to use their conscious mind to drive their body states. Um, and, and then in feed, in biofeedback, the conscious mind is added to the feedback loop. 
Uh, Stephen talks about uh, the technology of neurofeedback, which is directly studying the brain's feedback and activity. The technology um, takes brain waves and converts them into images and sounds. As the brain drifts from one state to another, the image or tone changes. It's often used by practitioners to achieve meditative states. And I think that's really important because if you want to have a super organism, then it is really important for people to be in the same state mentally. If people are all over the map in different states, then it's probably not going to work having a super organism. But if people are in synchronicity, like an artificial synchronicity created by um, this technology to have us in these states, then yeah, you could have maybe a super organism emerge from that. Um, so it's really important. And like I said, I just, you know, people do what they are going to do, what they're going to do. I just encourage people to really think about how we interact with this technology because to me, that sounds kind of creepy, you know, being able to monitor brain waves and my brain activity and my thoughts, then, I mean, really, then, you know, are our thoughts are, are the question for me then becomes, it, are the thoughts that I'm thinking, are they my own or they do they belong to something else? Like, is there something else going on? Do I have privacy in my own thoughts? Like, have anyone... I wonder if anyone who is listening has ever had the, the experience of like, let's say your smartphone and, and your smartwatch and stuff like that, they're off and you've, you've put them on the other side of the room and it's just you and your thoughts, right? And you're just, you know, meditating or you're thinking, or maybe you're, you're writing something in your journal and then you go back on your computer and there's a ad related to the thing that you were thinking about or and you're just like, what? Like, how did that happen? I didn't even say anything to my phone because, yes, our, our phones do have the ability to, you know, if you're saying something and your phone picks it up, like, you'll see an ad for it. Um, but your thoughts, though, when it's just you and your thoughts and then you go on the computer and there's an ad for what you were thinking about, like, that's creepy. <laughs> That's so weird. So sometimes I think about like, like stupid stuff and then I'll get like a, an ad for that stupid thing. And it's just like, ah, got you. <laughs> uh, cause if you don't laugh about it, then you're just gonna, or at least if I don't find a way to laugh about it, sometimes laughter is good medicine, you know, treating things. I, I think it was Madeline Engel's book, um, in her book, the, uh, wrinkle in time where she was talking about how it's important to treat serious subjects with a sense of humor. And I think she's right. A sense of humor, I think, in these day, in this day and age will go a long way to helping us, you know, stay... At least it helps me to stay mentally healthy and stuff just to have a sense of humor about these things and to look at it, them that, yes, they're silly, but it's also kind of... Like, they're serious, but they're also kind of silly at the same time. <laughs> Um, okay, so I just want to see what else do I have in here.
Okay, I just want to end, I'm going to end with one more slide about uh, the rules. So in the um, the last part uh, in his, his chapter about feedback, he does, uh, Stephen does talk about uh, rule, the rules in, a, in the system, like the, the, the rules that we're all expected to abide by. And I think that's really important to talk about because they kind of go with feedback. Um, so the the rules the rules in a system have both positive and negative feedback attached to them, uh, and they are designed to push the system in a particular direction based on the participants' activities. And different feedback system systems produce different results. Uh, Stephen does make the interesting observation that diversity can be suppressed by both the bottom up approach and the top down approach only by focusing on the average users in a system or how the average person interacts in the system. And I kind of talked about that with YouTube. Like you can have really great channels on YouTube, but they're suppressed right now because one, the average user isn't really looking for them. And two, um, the content that the creator is making doesn't really fit with the system, doesn't really fit with the rules. So complex adaptive systems, they uh, rely on individual agents interacting with each other and following a set system of rules and behaviors. But the thing is, is that, you know, the question to ask yourself is who is the one creating the rules? Like who does that? Um, I know Stephen or Stephen often talks about how, uh, like a bot. There's going to be this bottom-up approach for artificial emergence, and how it's going to be a decent example of decentralized autonomy. That's not going to be true because there's still going to be central control of this and most of it would be like the tech companies, government, large corporations, um, hedge fund managers, like there's a lot of different institutions and people involved in this. Uh, but they're the ones that are going to be setting the rules. It's not the average person that's going to create the rules and they can change the rules whenever they want. Like they can change the goalposts. So nothing's going to be set in stone, it's going to be, the goalposts will be moved around all the time. And so it's not really an example of a decentralized system. It's centralization, but with the appearance of being decentralized, if that makes sense. Like everything is still going to be connected to this central power. Like even in this, like even separate smart cities, they're still going to be connected to each other and they're still going to kind of run towards this central super organism, if that makes sense. So the rules are important and it's also important to remember that the rules can be set by these central uh, institutions or these central figures that are acting on behalf of the system. Um, and it's not going to be fair. <laughs> I can tell you right now, it won't be fair for the average person. Um, it's going to be, it's kind of like going into a casino and knowing that the house always wins. And yeah, maybe sometimes 
individuals get lucky and, and they win a jackpot, but for the most part, that's not true. And then the funny thing is, is if people figure out how to beat the game, they either change the rules or they beat that person up. <laughs> they don't like it. Like if someone knows how to count cards or if they know how to like gain an advantage over a game in a, in a casino and the house figures that out, then they kind of go and and deal with that person if you catch my drift. So it's kind of the same. You can apply that to artificial emergence where the game, the rules aren't going to be set by individuals. It will be set by the house of the system. So that's where, you know, maybe instead of, maybe one of the ways to figure out how to get out of the labyrinth, and I'm going to end on the, the show on this note, maybe one of the ways to get out of the labyrinth or to think about what we can do is peaceful non-compliance. It's just like, well, maybe I don't want to participate in this. You know, what if we can figure out something else? Um, because I don't know how to necessarily resist this. Um, but maybe that's the key. Maybe, maybe something to think about, like a takeaway from this show is just, you know, how can we stop participating with the matrix so much, right? Is there a way that we can have peaceful non-compliance with this stuff? Um, it's just something, I don't have an answer for it. Uh, I don't have an answer for any of this. Because I'm just trying to figure out what's going on as well. But maybe there is a wisdom in just not complying with it and just finding something else. Uh, so I'm gonna leave uh, that. I'm gonna leave the show there. And oh, and I meant to give my moment of gratitude during the the first part of my show. I usually do a moment of gratitude. So I'll just do it now as, as I kind of close out today. And I am grateful that um, it's been really hot over this last little while. So I'm grateful that we have a nice cool day today with a nice breeze. I'm probably going to go and enjoy a nice walk um, because it has been pretty hot. So and that's another reason why I haven't really put out too many shows recently just because it's been so hot to record anything uh, so I am grateful to have this cool day so I I felt like oh maybe it's a good time to uh, record a show and then I will try and get the next show up for next week and if not then you know it might be a little slower just as the summer closes out but I'll definitely be my focus is definitely to finish the book Emergence and then to uh, start talking about B.F. Skinner's work so That'll be exciting. And then for my coffee today, I just had some store-bought coffee that I, like the coffee beans that I got and um, been en enjoying like how, learning how to do pour-over coffee. And with pour-over coffee, you get more of the flavor from the coffee bean. And that was pretty tasty. Um, so anyway, I hope everyone has a blessed day and a blessed week and a summertime and I hope that you find if you're living in a hot area, that you find a way to stay nice and cool. Um, and thank you for stopping by the cafe and have a heartfelt week. Thank you. Bye-bye.